podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. We hope you enjoy this sermon. For more information about Redeemer, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com. Good morning, Redeemer. It's a privilege to be with you all today. Today's scripture reading is from the New Testament book of Ephesians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have loved us and saved us with amazing grace. Lord, I pray that today as we look into your holy word, we would never cease to be astonished that you have loved us, that you've had grace upon us when we were your enemies. While we were still yet sinners, you sent your son Jesus to die for us and by his blood reconcile us to yourself. So I pray that today, that more than just knowing that truth with our heads, that we would respond and worship to that truth with our hearts, that all of our lives would be worship unto your glory and your great name. We pray this in the mighty name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You can have your seat today. There was once a young man who was born in a small and very forgotten town in the world. His mother was a very devout Christian, his dad not so much, but as this man grew older, it was very aware that he was beyond brilliant an unbelievably bright mind and that he had a future upon him. He went to college at a very young age, and more than just going to college, he became a professor at a, a university before he was even 30. This was a man who excelled in rhetoric. He taught philosophy and uh, very much became a, a keen mind in understanding the way that the world worked and understanding the way that, that thought and rationality and reason work together. And as he began to grow up, and as he began to go into his career, he excelled not only in academics, but in sin. Um, He was a a very popular young man, and uh, he had a way with the ladies, and as he did that, he would go on to different towns and different places where his career would bring him, and as it would happen in Providence, he was brought to a city that had a very famous church and a very famous preacher, and as he was a professor of rhetoric, he instructed people on how to teach and be able to present ideas. 
he wanted to be able to go and see what all the fuss was about. Um, he was not a Christian. He knew very much that some of the ideas of Christianity and the Bible were a little bit foolish, a little bit crude, but nevertheless, he wanted to go see what all the fuss of this great preacher was about. And so he went and he sat under the teaching of the Bible as he had never heard it taught before. Suddenly, the very implausible ideas of the Christian gospel became very beautiful to him, very intellectually stimulating to him, and somehow began to become all the more plausible. Maybe this was believable after all. As he sat under the teaching of this great preacher, he began to be educated in Christian doctrine. He began to be educated in church history. And even how the gospel of Jesus Christ would interact with several of the great philosophies of the world. And this appealed to him because, after all, he knew philosophy. He began to be very attracted, particularly to the writings of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And as he was comparing Paul, this brilliant mind, with the brilliant minds of the human philosophers, he began to see that Paul taught about something that he could find nowhere else in the history of philosophy. And that was the concept of amazing grace. It became such an attractive concept to him, this idea of grace, that he began to study the writings of Paul for himself. And it was in the moment of reading the book of Romans that he was converted. He became a Christian. And very soon, Augustine, this man who was this great scholar, this, this great brilliant mind, became a Christian and he was baptized. He was baptized by Ambrose of Milan, one of the great preachers of his day, and Augustine of Hippo, this, this great scholar, this great theologian, this great pastor who was born in northern Africa, would go on to become one of the greatest minds in Christian history, one of the greatest theologians and greatest pastors of Christian history. And I, I bring up Augustine because we're, we're in a season right now where last week we acknowledged that it was the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Now, as you might know, Augustine was not a Protestant reformer. In fact, he lived about a thousand years before the Protestant Reformation ever happened. However, Augustine's voice, Augustine's ideas, were some of the most crucial and central ideas of theology that were rediscovered during the period of the Protestant Reformation, especially how Augustine wrote about the doctrine of grace, particularly salvation by grace alone. Now, salvation by grace alone was one of these ideas that the, the Protestant reformers were proposing, not as a new idea. In fact, if you want to understand how the Protestant reformers thought about their movement, they did not think that they were proposing a new theology of any kind. What they felt like they were doing is they were recovering, they were rediscovering an ancient theology, a true theology of the essential core truths of the Christian faith that over the centuries had been forgotten, had been obscured by some of the excesses of the church at that time. And I believe as we look into that truth of salvation by grace and grace alone today, I want to be able to understand what grace is. And this is worth writing down. It's worth memorizing the definition of grace. That grace is God's unmerited favor and love. God's unmerited favor and love. In other words, this is not something you can earn. This is not something you can merit. This is not something you can deserve. But it is nevertheless favor and love given by God to his people. Now, I have to say on the onset, grace sounds like a good idea. It sounds like an attractive idea. But I've seen so often in my own heart and the experience of being a pastor 
that everything in us tends to go against the idea of grace. We are gravitationally pulled toward a spirituality wherein we believe that we can perform for God's love, that we can earn, that we can merit God's favor. And so, as we look into this idea today, I want to be able to just look at and marvel at what this great idea is. It is Christianity's greatest idea, a gift to a broken world. And Augustine believed and taught and defended grace as that central notion of the gospel. In fact, we see elsewhere in the New Testament that the gospel isn't just the gospel. Acts chapter 20 verse 24 says the gospel is the gospel of the grace of God. So today I want to spend some time exploring that doctrine, and as we do so, I want to remind us what we are doing in this series is we're not simply wanting to rediscover the stories and the doctrines of the Reformation. My desire in this is that the Holy Spirit of God would awaken our hearts to see these truths in such a way that God would author a Reformation in our own hearts that God would author a reformation in our lives. And so, without any further ado, I'd like to walk through Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, which I believe really is probably the most important passage in Scripture teaching this doctrine of salvation by grace alone. And I want to do so by looking at three different ideas. Number one, the necessity of grace. Number two, the cause of grace. And number three, the purpose of grace. So point number one, the necessity of grace. When we look at a modern view of humankind, we are tempted very much by our culture and by the educational theories that surround us to believe that human nature is fundamentally good. But the Bible would disagree. The Bible would disagree and say that human nature is not fundamentally good, but that human nature is fundamentally dead. These are the first few verses of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says to us, Paul says to you, you were dead. And when he says you, he means you. He means you. He means me. He means all of us. He's not just writing to the Ephesians church as if they were some type of especially bad group of people. Paul is stating something that he believes to be true about the entirety of the human race, the reality of our spiritual condition. And the reason he is bringing up this spiritual condition outside of Christ is because unless we acknowledge the reality of our spiritual condition, we cannot acknowledge the reality and the magnitude of grace. The theological term for this spiritual death is called total depravity. Now, total depravity might be a term that you've heard before, but a lot of times it's misunderstood. Total depravity does not mean that all of us all the time are as bad as we can possibly be. It doesn't mean that we're all doing the worst possible thing that we could do all the time, every single day, in every single way. What it does mean is that we are radically unable to be righteous. That we possess this radical inability to be moral people. We have this radical inability to even rise up and meet our own standards of morality. Our self-centeredness and depravity can be revealed oftentimes in very obvious ways, but it can also be revealed in very hidden ways. 
It's easy to be able to look at an addict that is destroying their life and being able to look at this sin that is wreaking havoc on their career, on their family, and on all their relationships and say, yes, that is depravity. Depravity is leading that person to sin. Maybe even that own person hates their own sin, but they are unable to escape from it. But there are other versions of depravity that honestly are much more respectable. The type of depravity that would lead us to a a fierce ambition where we're going to put our career in front of all else and if we even have to step on our own family or on people that we love or other people that are created in the image and likeness of God in order to get ahead, we will. The type of depravity that would cause us to believe that I have to control every single nook and cranny of my child's life so that they can be the person that I want them to be. So that they can be the success, that, so that they can be the good person that says something good about me. And I want you to know that all types of depravity, whether they're something that would be obvious or more subtle, all lead to a place of death, decay, and destruction. They lead us to the same place. That our condition outside of Christ is that we are enslaved and subject to the influence of the world, the world around us that leads us away from desiring God. The influence of our own hearts that leads us to sin. The influence of spiritual temptation. Augustine taught this doctrine by remembering a very memorable episode from his childhood. It would seem very innocuous and very neutral to us, but he tells this story about being a little boy, growing up in a neighborhood, and and walking around his neighborhood um, doing what little boys do, and they saw a pear tree. It was a pear tree belonging to a neighbor, and They went up into that pear tree. They knocked down every single piece of fruit. They ate and took a few bites of a few of them, but they left them there to rot and be destroyed. And as a Christian, when Augustine remembered that event, he noted a few things that were going on in his heart at the time. He noted the fact that it wasn't because he was hungry that he ate the fruit. It wasn't because that there was anything special or extraordinary about those particular pears. Rather, what Augustine was able to observe in his own heart is that it was the sinfulness of sin itself that drew him into doing something that he knew was forbidden. It was the idea that he desired to do something wrong simply because it was wrong that somehow made his heart desire this thing. And that's a condition that we all have. Augustine writes it in such a way that he would even confess that he, in his own way, even as a child, was participating in the original sin by which our first parents fell. Genesis chapter 3, when the first man and the first woman took the forbidden fruit and led us, led the entire posterity of the human race to this place of death, that we are spiritually dead, that we are radically unable to be righteous and be the people that we are called to be. Now, this idea of total depravity, it might seem like it's a theological term or something that's highly you know, conjectural or hypothetical, but it's not. In fact, the term of total depravity, I believe, is something that we desperately need in order to be able to make sense out of the broken world that is around us. A few weeks ago, we, we saw the horrific shooting that happened in Las Vegas, Nevada. And perhaps one of the, the greatest things that has come out of that particular tragic event is that We have searched and searched and searched for a motive, only to find nothing. People oftentimes want to attribute 
evil to some external type of cause. And so we come up with these ideas of maybe it was severe poverty that causes people to lash out and hurt other people. Well, in this particular case, it wasn't poverty. This was actually a very wealthy man who did these actions. Well, we might say perhaps he wasn't educated. He didn't have enough opportunity in front of him. Well, actually, he had a lot of opportunity. He was very educated. He was a CPA. He was highly successful at what he did. Well, then we must say, it must be some type of a radical ideology that he was a part of. It was either a political ideology, like he was a radical white-wing extremist or a left-wing extremist. Maybe he was a Muslim or a fundamentalist Christian. Something has to be able to explain why someone would do what he did. And all of our modern explanations fall up short. But the Bible would show us that there at times is simply a radical evil that is in the human heart. An evil which lurks inside of all of us outside of Christ. An evil from which we must be rescued. You see, we do not like to think that we're this bad in and of ourselves. We don't want to think that. We would like to imagine that we could somehow be good enough to be able to give something to God. To put God somehow into our debt. That idea is a very human notion. It's a very common notion. In fact, that's the reason that during Augustine's lifetime, there was a very popular teacher named Pelagius. Because he taught ideas just like that. Pelagius taught that human nature was fundamentally good. That when we understand Christian salvation, that all Christian salvation is, is we look at the righteous example of Jesus Christ and we try to imitate him. We try to walk in his ways. We try to be like Jesus and do what Jesus would do. Pelagius thought that trying to describe salvation as some type of spiritual miracle was irresponsible. It was ridiculous that essentially what we needed to do was to follow the directives of the Bible and be good people. In other words, Pelagius taught and believed what we would sum up in the phrase that God helps those who help themselves. And it was over against this idea that Augustine would teach and preach that we are absolutely dead outside of Christ Jesus. That it's only by the extravagant grace of God and the redeeming work of Jesus Christ that he can not just make us better people, but new people, transform people. I think like Pelagius, we West Texans truly believe that we can save ourselves by pulling ourselves up by our own spiritual bootstraps. We believe that we have something to contribute to our salvation, but Augustine would disagree. In fact, this is what Augustine would once write. He said, The only thing of our very own which we contribute to our own salvation is the sin from which we need to be redeemed. If that's all we give, all we give is the sin from which we need to be redeemed. Now, those are pretty dire um, assessments of the human condition, I have to admit. That's not the the most touchy-feel-good sermon, but I will say this. The purpose of acknowledging this dire state is to not rub our noses in our failure. It's not to be able to shame us. Rather, Scripture is calling us to be able to understand the gravity of our need so that we would be astonished by God's mercy. As one commentator says, the past is recalled not because the emphasis falls upon it, but in order to draw attention to God's mighty action in Christ. Paul wants us to know, Augustine wants us to know that we are not bad people in need of resuscitation. Outside of Christ, we are dead people in need of resurrection. 
Only when we understand the reality of our spiritual condition can we rightly understand and marvel at that salvation is by grace and grace alone. Point number two, the cause of grace. Now, Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three is pretty bad news. But immediately when we go into chapter, or when we go into verse four, it's the best news we could ever hope for. But God, you're dead. You're dead in your trespasses. You're enslaved to sin in and of yourself. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that at the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Those who were once dead are now made alive with Christ Jesus. Those who are bound by sin have now been raised up and seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Those who are once objects of God's wrath and judgment are now objects of God's kindness and love. Nothing could be greater than the contrast of what man is by nature and what man can be by the grace of God. The question that is naturally provoked when we, when we look at these statements is what on earth could cause this change? What on earth could be the cause of God's grace? And the Bible's answer is very clear. Nothing causes grace except for the sheer goodness of God's character. Absolutely nothing. That there's nothing that we can do to contribute to make grace happen. That grace happens simply because God is good. Because he is a God of steadfast love and mercy. That grace happens only because of God. That if we're to look at the initiative of grace, it's in this text going to be God's great love, verse 4, his mercy, verse 4, his rich grace, verse 5, and his kindness, verse 7. The whole paragraph here is emphasizing that God acted on our behalf simply because of his own gracious and merciful character. Nothing that we can contribute to the equation. And I will tell you, when you allow that to sink down from your mind and into your heart, that is one of the most humbling truths of the gospel. That it was not in your best moment that God saved you. That it was not in your best moment that Christ died for you. But it was at your worst moment. It was at your lowest place. It was when you were the most broken. The Son of God cried out for your salvation. The Son of God bled so that you might be redeemed. That God saved you while you were his enemy. We are very much like the prodigal son. Jesus tells the parable of Luke chapter 15 of a very wealthy father, a very good father. And he had a younger son who came to him one day and said, I would like my inheritance now. What you have coming to me, I would like it now. And and in that day and age, that was the equivalent of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so that I could go live my life. I would like my inheritance now. The father gives to his son his vast inheritance, and the son goes to a far-off nation, and he goes on a joy spree. He essentially spends all of his money on pleasure and decadence, indulging every desire that he might have. So much so that he very quickly ran out of money. And in that foreign nation, the nation was affected by a vast famine. 
The young son didn't know what to do. He was out of money, and so he began to do whatever odd job that he could. He eventually found himself being one who was managing a pigsty, and he was so poor that he looked at the food that the pigs were eating and began to be hungry for that type of a food. And it was in that moment when he saw the very end and the outcome of his sin and his self-destruction that he came to himself and realized, this is horrible. The life I've chosen for myself, the life that I thought I wanted, what I thought would give me joy, has only ended in death and destruction. But my father is good. And it was in that moment that the son decided to go home. And he, he knew that by his actions... He had wronged and dishonored his father. He knew that he would never be worthy again to be called a son. But maybe, just maybe, because his father's so gracious and merciful that he could become a servant in his father's household. Maybe he could be able to just simply be a servant that would be well provided for and taken care of. And it's in the moment where he begins to come home and he's quite a far distance away that the father sees that the son is returning home. But rather than shaming him, rather than cursing him, rather than demanding that that son do penance in order to be able to come onto his property, the father gets up and he runs to his son. He embraces his son. He, he holds his son fast to himself and he, he gives his own cloak to his son and he brings him home. And in his home, he throws a vast feast in honor that the son who was dead is now alive. The son that was lost is now found. And Jesus would tell us, he would tell you and he would tell me, this is how gracious your father is. Your heavenly father is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That is the marvelous reality of his grace, of his great love for you. It comes only from himself. And that's such good news because that means that no matter where you are, no matter how far you think you are from God, There's no place that you can go that his grace cannot grab you and bring you home. Point number three is this, the purpose of God's grace. Grace originates from God. It is accomplished by God through and through, and God wants us to know that because he wants us to know that we can take absolutely no credit for any of this. Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We don't contribute anything. The only thing we contribute is faith, and we can't even take credit for that, the Bible says. Grace, salvation, these are gifts from God. But what this is showing us is it's not suggesting that even though salvation doesn't come by good works, that somehow good works don't matter. Because that would be an easy implication to draw from this text, right? That, well, if it's by grace and grace alone, good works aren't what save me, then I can just go and do whatever I want. The Bible is not saying that. As we go into the the next verse, it shows that grace actually awakens us and transforms us and changes us to live a new way of life. A way of life that Christ has died for and rose again so that we might live. Verse 10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Another way of saying this is that we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. We cannot earn our salvation. We cannot do enough good works that would somehow accrue our own salvation. 
But when Christ saves us by grace and grace alone, he saves us not so that we would live lives of sin, but so that we would live new lives of righteousness. And when we live those new lives of righteousness, we are not doing so on the basis of trying to earn God's love. We are doing it because we've been given God's love. And that changes the way that we look at works, right? It's not something that we do to earn God's love. It's simply a response of worship to the awesome reality of God's mercy. Klein Snodgrass, a commentator on this passage, says the following. He says, Surely proper application of this text starts with speechlessness. Then it moves to wonder and worship. And finally, to obedience and service. It begins with speechless wonder. Worship that God would be this good. And it naturally moves our hearts to a place that all of our lives become an act of sacrificial worship to the God that has redeemed us. A God that has so transformed us by his love. Because that's the thing. Whenever you understand the reality of God's love for you, it changes your heart in such a way that you begin to desire God. You begin to desire the one that is so very good, the one who is so very gracious. Augustine famously taught that sin was nothing more than disordered loves in our heart. That when we look at sin, essentially that's what's happening in our hearts. Our, our loves, our desires have somehow been disordered. That we desire the wrong thing too much and we put things in the wrong place that they should be in. We exalt things like money and career, our own comfort, our own control, and we place them above God. And when we place them above God, everything else in our life breaks and distorts. And our hearts are bound to that type of spiritual condition. But when God makes us alive again in Christ Jesus, he does not make us slightly better people. He makes us new people. He makes us new people with new hearts that desire what is good and beautiful and true. So that when we come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith and he saves us by grace, he transforms us. He gives us new hearts that desire what is righteous and true. He reorders the desires of our heart so that we find our truest joy and our truest rest in God. In fact, probably what is Augustine's most famous quote comes from the very first page of his book, The Confessions. Thou awakest us to delight in thy praise. For thou madest us for thyself, and our heart is restless until it rests in thee. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in the God who has saved us, the God who has loved us. And that only comes by grace. Now, grace is free, but it is not cheap. In fact, grace came at the highest cost that could ever be paid with the most precious, most precious currency in the cosmos, the blood of Jesus Christ himself. Our sin was so great that it merited the death of Jesus Christ, but God's love was so great that he willingly paid that price for you and for me. So Redeemer Christian Church, the only response we can give, the only response we can have is amazement and is worship. So today, as we go forward, let us worship and let us marvel at the amazing saving grace of our God. Amen. And let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you love us in a way that we don't deserve. Thank you that your grace saves us when we were your enemies, while we were still yet sinners. But thank you that your grace does not leave us there. 
that your grace transforms us, changes us, makes us new. And so I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would breathe that truth onto our hearts and our lives, that our hearts right now in this moment would begin to desire and rest in you. Lord, teach us to forsake lesser joys for the sake of the greatest joy, which is to know you. Because it's in you, in your presence, there's fullness of joy and life forevermore. And I thank you that we can't perform for you enough to earn this love, that we can't merit our own salvation, but that you give it to us by grace. So today I pray for the spiritually exhausted, those that are weary and weak, that you would give them rest in their souls, knowing that their salvation comes by grace and grace alone. And in this moment for those that that need to trust in that grace for the first time, I pray that you would give them the courage to respond to believe, to put their hope in Christ Jesus. And for all of us, let us be a people that walk in amazement. Amazement that you have given us a grace that we do not deserve, but a grace that you've given us because you have loved us. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Redeemer Christian Church in Amarillo, Texas. For more information about Redeemer, please visit our website at RedeemerChristianChurch.com.